0: Hey, this is Tommy. Before we start this episode, I want to tell you about a couple of Southbound live events we've got coming up here in Charlotte. On February 22nd and March 28th, we're doing panel discussions on the future of Charlotte, featuring leaders from all over the city. We'll be talking about where Charlotte is now and the challenges and opportunities that lie ahead. The events will be held at WFAE Center, For civic and community engagement in Uptown Charlotte. Tickets and more information available now at WFAE.org/slash Charlotte Forward. Today's episode of Southbound is a replay of our episode from last summer with the brilliant Tressie McMillan Cottom. I think it ended up being our most popular episode of the year, and rightly so. She is one of America's greatest thinkers. So if you didn't catch this last time, or even if you did, enjoy.
1: If we conflate people, individuals, flawed, conflicted, people who can be, um, as my great granddaddy used to say, the nicest white man he knew was in the Klan. And, you know, we laugh. and <laughs> But that's like the reality of being intimate in the American South, that you could be good friends with someone who politically wanted to annihilate you.
0: Hey, y'all. I'm Tommy Tomlinson. And from WFAE in Charlotte, this is Southbound. Conversations with people from all walks of life about how the South shapes who they are and what they do. Not many people in American life cover as much intellectual ground as Tressie McMillan Cottom. She's a sociologist and a professor at UNC Chapel Hill. Her book, Thick, includes essays on body image, race, Gender and culture. She's a columnist for the New York Times, writing on everything from cryptocurrency to The Cosby Show. She wrote one of the definitive pieces on Dolly Parton, and she's a recipient of one of those MacArthur Foundation genius grants. Whatever room she's in, she's likely to be the smartest person in the room. She's also funny as hell, down to earth, and enraptured. A little dog named Kirby. We cover a lot of territory in this episode, from the concept of whiteness to the tragedy that shaped her life. And we go deep right from the beginning on a matter of crucial importance. Here's our conversation. I I hate to start on a down note, but there is something that has just happened in the last couple of days as we tape this that's sort of heavy information that I want you to help me process. How do you feel about the death of the Choco Taco?
1: Oh, 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 you, you got to warn me. You got to warn me, Tommy. I am emotionally distraught about the Choco Taco. I have been on the road for the last couple of days. I come back and, you know, when you've been away from the news and social. I knew it would be bad. Okay, let's just say this. (laughs) It's always bad these days when you're gone for a little while and you turn it back on. But when the first thing I see is that the much loved, much celebrated, actually perfect Choco Taco. Here's the thing about the Choco Taco. It is a perfect delivery vehicle. It's absolutely divine as it is designed. That's right. It's perfect. You know how you're eating the ice cream cone, it melts and falls all over your hand or the top of it falls off and it goes rolling like the girl's head in the song with the the ribbon and not the Choco Taco. The Choco Taco is good in every bite. It's good from first bite to last bite. So, yes, I am so distraught about the Choco Taco, Tommy.
0: I wonder if people are like hoarding it now, you know, if they're like looking for stashes. If uh,
1: by people you mean me, then yes.
0: <laughs> Have you been to the store?
1: No. So my grand plan uh, is to channel my father, who uh, f- feels this way about Polaroid film and winning lottery tickets. Oh. He just thinks your odds are better at like country stores. Oh,
0: that's actually not bad.
1: That are not frequent. I don't know where he gets this from, but so my plan is, yes, a nice long country drive, stop at the country stores and gas stations along the way, uh, and pick up some choco tacos.
0: With a big cooler in your back seat. That's right. right. <laughs> so I want to kind of start the, this other part of our conversation. You mentioned something in your essay, Thick, in the book Thick, and, and I'll just quote it here. As I've said to anyone who will listen to me, I want a black woman to have one damn job instead of five or six. And that led me to look at your uh, current resume, (laughs) which you're a professor at UNC. You have a role at Harvard. You are writing for the New York Times. You're, I'm sure, working on a book of some kind. You and Roxane Gay just had a workshop over the weekend that I saw on social media. So is this the case of Sort of a do as I say, not as I do situation? It really
1: is. I know. Call me
0: on the carpet. Why don't you?
1: Yes, yes. I, you know, I probably was preaching to myself in the text, as is often the case. I don't have to tell you so often we're writing to others. We're really just writing to ourselves. Uh, I've been chasing this elusive one job for a few years now, and all I keep finding are additional jobs. Uh, but listen, I'm a very lucky and fortunate girl. These are um, amazing jobs and spaces where I could not have been imagined uh, 10, 15, 20 years ago. In some cases, I couldn't have been imagined even five years ago. Uh, and so I never take that for granted. Um, but I am at the stage where people now approach me with opportunities and I go, let me give you some names. <laughs> we We can spread it around now, people. It's all right. Yes.
0: Well, I also wonder, you know, given the stuff that you are doing, how do you decide from sort of day to day, week to week, where to focus your time and attention?
1: A huge challenge, actually. I I do think I have gotten a little better at that. I now think about things, um, as events, uh, and that has been very helpful for my thinking. Uh, Trying to make my life work like a nine to five, uh, you know, corporate structured 40 hour a week job uh, was really just driving me uh, insane uh, because there was just no way for me to give everything equal attention every day of the week. Um, So now I think of my life in uh, quarters. And so I have a focus by quarter usually shaped around my priorities for that uh, for that time period. So, you know, we're entering in a new quarter, the academic year will be starting. And so for me, that's always the beginning of the year, you know. Uh, <laughs> I'll be a student and teacher my whole life in my mind. And so the beginning of the year is actually August. Uh, and so this is like my first quarter coming up, and I've got my priority set from August to the end of the year. And that's how I shape the weeks within that quarter. And then I have to constantly revisit them um, every quarter. So there are times when I am working on an essay for a week straight, I'm not even thinking about a book or about grading or about speaking or anything else. Um, And I've had to let go of sort of the panic about that, like, you know, that, that something else somewhere is falling down if I pay attention to this thing, because all of those jobs require concentrated focus.
0: As I was rereading Thick this week, I came across something toward the end of the book where you say, if my work is about anything, it is about how making plain precisely how prestige, money and power structure our so-called democratic institutions So that most of us will always fail. And what I'm wondering is, when did that reality first sort of become aware to you? Oh, that's a
1: wonderful question. First of all, I just, I love hearing my words in your mouth, Tommy. This is (laughs) is such a great moment for me. Uh, You know, and I'm not pandering at all. Truly, I think the first time it became really clear to me um, was in reflecting on my experiences growing up in Charlotte, North Carolina, um, as a then graduate student. So this is much later, you know, I've gone on and I'm in graduate school, uh, sociology PhD program at Emory University in Atlanta. And I decided that my focus was gonna be, I, was, I study uh, education and inequality in school. And I don't know, you're reading all of, you know, we're reading all of these, you know, really dry empirical academic articles about, you um, uh, school choice, uh, desegregation, right? And one of the foundational um, articles in that literature, if you're going to become an expert in race and inequality in school in the United States of America, is a case uh, from the Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system. And it is a busing case. and
0: the swan. It's the, the
1: swan. Swans. That's right. And I'm reading it and it dawned on me when that case was happening, like the year, I started to see it through my own biography. And I realized I had attended a school that was only possible when I attended it because of that decision. I go to West Charlotte Senior High School, uh, graduate in 1995. Um, It is this little idyllic bubble of a school that was chosen to sort of prove that you could do systematic school desegregation. And it's why I attended an historically black high school in a very economically diverse uh, city um, with economically diverse students and peers with really good teachers and things like IB programs and foreign languages and all these things that I just took for granted that that's what high school was. And I understood that, oh, my goodness, had I been off by two years earlier or two years later, even worse, once they started resegregating the school system again uh, using, you know, school choice, uh, I wouldn't have been who I was. I did college prep programs because I had a teacher, an English teacher at West Charlotte, who had a PhD in literature <laughs> and saw me as a potential, you know, college thinker and writer, like how different I would have been, my trajectory would have been um, just by an accident of time.
0: Yeah. And these things have obviously, as you've written about them and studied them and published about them, have made you, I guess the right word is public intellectual. That's your, somebody who's a thinker, who's, you know, out there, in the New York Times and other magazines and publications and that sort of thing. Is it still the case that in the academic world, somebody who's a public intellectual is looked at with some suspicion?
1: Oh, absolutely.
0: Absolutely. Tommy.
1: Yeah. I, uh, I don't know that we'll ever get rid of that. And if, and, and if we do, it will probably signal like a really big shift in how, um, the world works. But yes, no, I mean, I, you know, I'm at the stage now and you can definitely feel it. It's a thing in the air. You know, you go to academic conferences or panels or something um, and you just sort of feel it, you know, the little sort of like uh, you know, chuckle at the idea that, you know, you are contributing an academic paper, which, you know, I still do my job. I still do research and I supervise um, dissertations and still do that thing. Um, and then you add like the burden of being a woman and being a woman of color. And it's just always, a, you know, some disdain for uh, whether or not you are an, a legitimate member of the academy and the publicness just makes it that much more acute.
0: I want to talk about whiteness for a minute. Okay. Um, you draw this distinction in your work between white people who you often Mm -hmm. deal with as individuals and like or don't like or whatever Mm -hmm. your interaction with them. And this idea of whiteness as this destructive force, maybe the most destructive force in our history and culture. Could you sort of explain maybe that idea and how you came to it?
1: Yeah, because I, I think it's a it's an important one that nefarious, dishonest people will intentionally conflate whiteness and white people. And it's one of the reasons why I make the distinction, even when I'm speaking very casually in public. Now, there's some things I'll let go when I'm, you know, speaking colloquially. That is one I actually never do. I'm always very precise. And when I say white people, white persons or whiteness. Because I hope what I'm introducing into a conversation and a culture is, when I do that, is that we can talk about these things this way, right? There is a way for us to have a serious conversation as regular people about everyday uh, problems and challenges and ideas. And if we conflate people, individuals, flawed, conflicted, people who can be, um, as my great granddaddy used to say, the nicest white man he knew was in the Klan. And, you know, we laugh, and <laughs> but that's like the reality of being intimate in the American South, that you could be good friends with someone who politically wanted to annihilate you. And this has been used for a really long time from not by non-Southerners to try to say the South is like somehow culturally backwards in that way, that Black people didn't understand how oppressed we were because we could also be intimate or, you know, white people thought they could have it both ways, when really it is very sophisticated it's a sophisticated way of thinking to be able to separate the person from the system of ideas. This is why I think people from the South are just top-notch social scientists and social thinkers because we live in that complexity and nuance all the time. Um, And that nuance is this, that individuals, there's a basic human condition that we all share and that one-on-one or in small groups we can suspend certain big ideas and big beliefs to make the interaction go smoothly and we do it all the time when people can vote against something like gay marriage and then the very next day get on a plane and go to their son's wedding to his husband which is absolutely a thing i've read just uh, that a, a senator just did and we point that out as hypocrisy and I go, no, if we had the framework to understand what was happening there, we wouldn't get caught up in like a reactionism. Oh, look at the hypocrite. Oh, no, both of those things are happening all the time. And they're a really good check, I think, on ego, because it says you could be one of those people at any moment if you don't think about where what your place is in the world. So you can be a good person and do horrible things. Right, You can believe in horrible things and be nice to people. (laughs) And when we conflate those two things, we end up making um, a boogeyman of individuals and never challenging the actual problem.
0: I want to run a couple of, I guess, issues of the day kind of through that filter, through that lens. Okay. First of all, abortion. You know, the overturning of Roe v. Wade and whatever kind of chaos is happening right now in the States. How do you see that kind of through that lens?
1: Before we had an idea of whiteness, we had an idea of patriarchy. And so the fact that they operate very much the same, is not an accident. And so what I think we are seeing there is that a lot of very nice people for very good-sounding reasons believe in and benefit from an idea that is um, uh, ultimately undemocratic um, and violent against women, Um, that you can wrap it up in the idea of a love and life is actually a political uh, sleight of hand, but I think what we're seeing right now is a collapsing of the rhetoric around what it means to be a citizen. You can't actually be a citizen of a nation that you cannot move around freely in If your rights change from state to state, you're not a citizen of the United States. You are the citizen of a state. It is a back-end way to dissolve, first of all, the centrality of the federal government and the power of a, a nation state through restricting the rights of women's ability to move about freely, that women also believed in that and, in fact, have been at the forefront of championing that type of um, the reversal of Roe v. Wade is exactly like the issue of how very nice people can both benefit from and challenge a system that you can be patriarchal and be a woman.
0: The other issue I want to sort of run through this, this filter, I guess, is this, I guess what I've thought of is kind of this mass delusion, you know, the big lie, the idea that the the 2020 election wasn't real and that mm-hmm. all this stuff was overturned and that those feelings among a fairly substantial number of people two years later are still there. Mm-hmm. How, how do you see that through that sort of whiteness lens?
1: I see it as being on the same um, spectrum uh, as whiteness. You know, I'm in the, uh, many of my colleagues are at the media school uh, here at UNC Chapel Hill, and so we talk about this a lot because this is, a, you know, uh, a phenomenon that was made possible by our media system. You know, that you could go onto the internet and shape your entire worldview without ever having to engage with, you know, the idea of science or fact or uh, you know, empirical evidence or whatever. Like that's pretty new, right? And we see what happens. I think when that's unchecked, so it's a bit, it's a um, A media fueled crisis, but it is not historically unique. It's on a spectrum. And this is how I see it. If in 1772, you could uh, convene a group of propertied white men to enshrine the idea of democracy, right, in a founding document while handing your inkwell to your slave you already believed in a pretty big lie right you believed in a pretty big lie um if in by 1810 1850 when this idea across uh the across uh western nations was solidifying that there was some Uh, White racial group identity that was shared by white people, white men in particular in the New Americas, that made them similar to um, uh, Englishmen in a way uh, that superseded national identity or citizenship. They created the idea of white as a racial category that's a pretty big lie that that runs counter to biology, to just what we could see with our own eyes, right? Then we have in place always psychologically and socially um, the language to spin up these big ideas that run counter to reason, to science, to our own senses. So it's no surprise to me that when you can build your own little world on the internet, you would use that power to do what men did in 1772, and what nations did uh, in the 1820s, and uh, what we did uh, to convince ourselves the Holocaust wasn't happening, and what we did. You know, we're always spinning up these sort of collaborative stories that refute our own senses and our um uh, and science and reason.
0: When we come back, Tressie McMillan caught him talks about one of the many lessons she learned from her mother.
1: You know, I got from my mom the idea that I was responsible for doing the best I could. And not just like to myself or to her or to our family, like real, you know, concrete, but like I was responsible to something bigger.
0: That and more ahead on Southbound. Before we get back to this episode, I wanted to ask for a little help with something. If you enjoy Southbound, Please give us a good rating and write us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever podcast provider you have that allows such things. The more reviews and better ratings we get, the better chance there is that other listeners can find us. But to be honest, I'd just as soon you tell people about Southbound through good old word of mouth. If you could recommend it to just one person you know, somebody you might think would enjoy interesting conversations about the South. I'd be deeply grateful if you have any thoughts about the show guests to recommend or anything that you think might make Southbound better. You can email me at T Tomlinson at WFAE.org. Thanks so much for giving us a little bit of your time. And now back to my conversation with Tressie McMillan. I read somewhere at maybe in one of your essays that at some point in your career, you took classes to try to get rid of your southern accent. Yes. <laughs> and, and I'm wondering whether you that came from some feeling or some wish that you could sort of cleanse yourself of your southernness, mm-hmm. whether for professional reasons or personal reasons or what.
1: I think there was definitely, and there still is, um, you know, one upside I think maybe of the internet is it's given us more counter stories about what's possible what um authority sounds like what success looks like um but it is still really true that there are so many ideas bound up in this accent um you know who it mattered to my to a lot it mattered to my mom a lot she wanted to send me to finishing school to to try to counter the accent. And she was always upset. So, so this was not your idea? No, no. I, as most things, until age 25, I didn't have a single idea that was my own. Are you kidding me? <laughs> All of my ideas were inherited from my mother and my grandmother. <laughs> I don't think I had an independent idea. Uh, until I was way down the line. Um, but yeah, we definitely, and it's because she had gotten that message that there is a voice of an educated, cultured person. And it certainly wasn't the one that says y'all or says ain't or fits into or any of those things. Um, I came to love what southernness could describe that non-Southern dialects couldn't. If I gave up my accent, there were just so many things I couldn't describe anymore. I couldn't describe points in time where you were almost somewhere, but not quite, but could be. Right? That's what fixing two is. Uh, it's going to happen. <laughs> it is known to happen. <laughs> it has not happened yet. <laughs> right? And there were, there were these figures of speech that just didn't exist um, without the Southern language, but it absolutely shaped how other people saw me. I think that is still true. It is true in my writing. It is true in my public work. Um, you know, one of my constant fights uh, at something like the New York Times and copy editing is my voice, quote unquote, my voice. And I know what they mean when they say it. <laughs> right i know what's being said when that happens
0: are they not letting eight through in the new right rooms
1: no they're not and it's an ongoing joke uh because they take it out and i put it right back in Then you take it out and I put it right back in um and i keep winning i keep winning uh because it resonates with an audience right and if you do that enough you'll end up you know you get enough clout where you can win but the fact that it just feels so viscerally wrong to people is the thing. It's just a, it's just a gut reaction because sometimes I'll ask them, well, what else would you say? Give me an alternative. And they don't have one.
0: And do you feel like now that you've broken through and had some measure of success, do you, do you find yourself being more Southern?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. It's so clear to me that this is a function of class that it's not even funny. The more you, <laughs> um, because, you know, the point where you feel the resistance to your Southernness the most is with gatekeepers. Right, um, you know, it's the person interviewing you for the job. It's the person at the restaurant or the hotel who acts like they can't understand you. I love those people, um you know, as if I'm speaking in a Scottish brogue, you know, they just can't understand me here in uh California and <laughs> but, as it turns out, um they understand you just fine when they understand your economic position uh, and I do laugh about that sometimes that I have perversely had more freedom to be Southern, the less my economic profile looks like a Southerner's.
0: <laughs> you mentioned a, a few minutes ago, your mom, who you refer to in your work as the Vivian, oh, like yes. like a superhero or maybe a supervillain. I'm not sure. Yeah,
1: it depends <laughs> um, on the story. Good catch. Um, what of her do you see in you? Oh, goodness gracious. You know, we're doing this podcast. Can I tell them that we can see each other as we're doing this podcast? And so to ask me this question while I'm looking in the camera, looking at my mother's face. (laughs) Yeah, I'm at that age where this is my mother's face. I woke up about two and a half years ago. Um, So there's that. And then there's, uh, you know, I have so much of my belief system comes from my mom. which is, of course, my tether just to her mom and her mom's mom. We're very matriarchal, I think, as many Southern families are. And, um, you know, that is a strong, strong matriarchal tether in my family. Um, we, We all look alike. We sound very similar. But I think what I really inherited was a belief system about how you think about the world and how you are supposed to navigate the world. We had a real, you know, I got from my mom the idea that I was responsible for doing the best I could. And not just like to myself or to her or to our family, like real, you know, concrete, but like I was responsible to something bigger. You know, whether that's the idea of like black progress or it was the idea of you've been blessed and this is what you do with your blessings. Like, are you kidding? You know, don't hide your light under the bushel kind of biblical story. Right. Um, and so it was a deep sense of responsibility that lingers, even as I've tried to kind of strip away some of, um, you know, the the strictures of that. I still and I think it makes me a grounded person. I feel deeply responsible to just doing what I think is the right thing, even if it costs you, Um, that there's some big book somewhere where these things are being tallied. And I want the right amount of checks when it's my turn to show up (laughs) that, you know, even if nobody was looking, you saw, you knew what happened. So that's when it mattered most to do the right thing. Not when other people could see it. You know, I got a sense of charity from my mom as. um, One of the things she used to say to me a lot in dealing with conflict with other people, she'd say, you know, it's all right to fight. It's all right to ask for what you need or want. Um, But when you are winning, let people save face. Um, I found that it become more and more important the older I get.
0: (laughs) That's that's falls in the category of good advice that's hard to take sometimes. Very,
1: very hard to take because we don't just want to win. We want them to admit we're winning. Like my inner toddler sometimes, like I don't just want to win. I want you to put my name on your shirt and wear it like a <laughs> scarlet letter, you know. And and what she was, I think what I got from that, though, and what has been true and what I'm really seeing here lately is that when you allow people to save face, it gives them away way to eventually deal with their responsibility in what happened. If you let them make you into a villain or give them the, you know, the material to turn you into a villain, they may never get to the place of needing to accept the role they played in what happened.
0: I want to ask about one other thing if if you don't mind. Mm-hmm. You have written and spoken beautifully about the loss of your daughter, mm-hmm. um, who you had after going through what sounds like a nightmare of doctors and nurses not really paying attention to or uh, understanding what you were going through, Mm -hmm. you gave birth to a a girl prematurely and she died very soon afterward. Mm -hmm. And I'm wondering, well, first of all, we haven't spoken before. I just wanna say I'm very sorry about that and for for what you, how people treated you. Thank you. Um, the other thing is, I wonder how that shaped or reshaped mm. what you write and think about.
1: Oh, it shaped everything. Uh, there's almost no way for me to overstate it. It's in every life, except the most fortunate of us, uh, by which I mean the wealthiest of us, <laughs> will have some trauma. It is is the great equalizing force of the human condition, right? You can't escape it. And everybody's trauma will look different. This was just mine. And I do have to believe that who you are going to be in the world starts the moment you start deciding what that trauma was going to do to you, how you come out of it on the other side. I don't think I'm a writer. I know I'm not a like public thinker. If I hadn't gone through that, let me tell you why that that trauma and especially the dehumanization of going through, like the um, the medical system as a very vulnerable Black woman, and what that felt like, connected me to a human condition. Honey, that I just will never lose to feel that dehuman, that dehumanized. You know, I've grown up reading uh, African-American literature my whole life, you know, uh, but you understand it a whole lot different. You read Toni Morrison differently about what beloved means, Uh, you know, the stories of uh, loss and despair just hit you different (laughs) after that, after being dehumanized in that way. So in many ways, it connected me deeper to the stories that it made me. Um, and I, it also just took away every, you know, it reshaped my baseline for fear and for risk. I don't know that I would have taken the risk to go to graduate school. I don't think I would have taken the risk of all the hits of being a public person. Um, when you're a black and woman and Southern and everything that came with that, um, if that trauma hadn't reset my baseline for how badly I could be hurt. <laughs> I am fond of saying, you know, you know, uh, Southerners like Irish people are really fond of dark humor. And I'm f- when something has happened to me, I'm fond of saying, well, what are they going to do? Kill my baby? <laughs> <laughs> I know it's so terrible for the other people in the room, right. but it works for me. And I go, well, what's the worst that could happen? It's so totally reset. <laughs> my baseline that I think I started taking risks in a way that absolutely I'm 100% positive made my life possible.
0: I wonder also, you talked about taking the hits of being a a public figure in the way you are. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine the people you heard from after you wrote that and put that out into the world. Yes,
1: so difficult, yeah. It's probably one of the more difficult parts of um, uh, my work and my job. What happens, of course, is that there are so few places for women, especially to deal with the trauma of loss, it's gotten a little better, but it's still, you know, what happens when um, you lose a baby uh, in the maternity ward, uh, they kick you out. And there's no other ward, they they, they kick you out, like, oh, well, you didn't do the thing, so. We don't have a place for you here. It's just so it's so, it is so. cruel, the abrupt end to all the social supports that happen when you've been pregnant, especially when you become visibly pregnant and, you know, all these things are supposed to happen. There's nothing. Nobody comes to, there's no aftercare nurse, there's no follow-up visits, there's nothing. And then something like my story gets published and maybe finds its way into your hands. And here's finally a place for you to put some of um, your feelings and your experiences. Um, and so, yeah, the letters, the women who come to my events, and not just the women, I might add, the men who go through it with their partners, Um I mean, I've got stories stacked up for days and days and days. It's just, an, you know, evidence to me of just how poorly we handle this as a society. We're not good at loss anyway. I think Americans really suck at loss. Southerners are pretty good at it, actually. They're pretty good at death and loss and mourning and grief. But like American culture is not. And I just always think of all those stories as a testament to how much better we need to do by people.
0: All this the the feedback you're getting, not just for that, but obviously you get tons of feedback for other things you write and put out in the world. I wonder if it's possible for you to see in that volume of feedback, do you ever see minds really change?
1: Oh, cool. Or do you feel
0: like you're seeing minds change?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, Because I try to, you know, I'm so... Uh, afraid of feedback, not of getting it. I'm afraid of believing it. (laughs) And so I'm very cautious about letting it, you know, internalizing too much of it. You know, I'll value it, especially when it's positive or emotional and thank people. But I try not to let it live in me because I'm so afraid that it might make me, um, I don't know. No, that I might not work as hard or I might not, you know, something. So I'm a little afraid. So because of that, I don't think about it systematically a lot is my way of saying that. I will say that people write me a lot with a, it's almost like they've got a form letter. I get a lot of letters that start with, I know I'm not your audience, but, (laughs) or I know this wasn't written for me but I just needed to tell you, right? And then they go into this thing. I get that a lot. And I think of that as an indication of that. What I think they're saying is I did not expect to find myself in this, in this uh, narrative. I certainly didn't expect to have this narrative find a place in me. And now it's living in me. I've taken in something of somebody else's experience who's different from me. And it has changed how I think about the world. Um, it's like just, you know, just those little moments of connection, of human connection. And I think uh, I think of those always as being a way where people's minds change. The ones that are by far the funnest and the funniest are all of the white men. And I have so many, so many, Tommy. All of the white men who come in almost shame face, you know, and embarrassed. I just, I really liked it. <laughs> okay. All right, It's fine. I think that might be... Uh, <laughs> some of the most evidence because I say to people, if I do nothing else at the end of this life, I hope that the voice of um, authority will sound different to people.
0: Your followers on Instagram and Twitter would not, they would, they would storm my house. um, If I did not ask about Kirby, the dog,
1: Kirby, the dog, the celebrity that is Kirby.
0: Please tell people about Kirby sort of where Kirby came from (laughs) Why you ended up with him, and the chaos he causes in your life?
1: Yes, and it is chaos. This dog is chaos in a furball um, form. You know, I don't even remember why Kirby happened. I I have blacked out. I've blacked out the whole experience of deciding to get Kirby. I blame COVID. I blame isolation. I blame so many things. Now, so I. I'd gone back and forth for years about maybe getting a dog. And then COVID made it so I was off the road. And it was sort of a, you know, if not now, never situation. I thought I'll be able to be home with the puppy and get him trained. And then the easy times when, you know, it'll be easy when I go back to work. Yeah, whatever. Uh, Kirby is now today a 10-month-old, have a niece. He is a brown and white mix. And I mean, truly a little furball. He is supposed to sleep a lot. They told me, well, they lied. He never sleeps and he is curious. He is not a lap dog. They also lied about that. Kirby is inquisitive and curious and wants to chase after everything. And listen, Tommy, I'm lazy. (laughs) I'm not a, I'm not an active girl. You know, on those dating websites, your level of activity. I'm always like none, (laughs) none. Uh, if they can come up with a way for me to never move, I'm taking it. And Kirby wants to go all that. He's social. I'm not social. Kirby has friends. He has a social calendar. Uh, little kids in my neighborhood, they are adorable. They are adorable. They love Kirby. And so sometimes I'm home and my doorbell rings and I'll hear little feet scuttering on my front porch, you know. And I open it, and there they are, about 7 to 10, number changes from time to time, and they're about 7 to 10 middle school tweeners who, is Kirby home? (laughs) And they just take my dog and come back later. They
0: they don't care about you. No!
1: No! And they go and they're gone for like an hour and a half. And then he comes home. He's tired. He's wet. I don't ask any questions. <laughs> he sleeps for 18 hours afterwards. So I'm happy. Um, they just figured out recently uh, how to use um, <laughs> PayPal, however. And so they've started charging me. Uh, really? Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's adorable. They- so you have a
0: neighborhood of scammers.
1: Basically. That's what I said. I was like, oh, this is a gang. I know protection racket when I see one. I grew up on The Godfather. I know what's happening here. So, yeah, the first half dozen were free, you see. Tommy. I mean, <laughs> now, all of a sudden, I've got to give them ten bucks.
0: The hardest thing about talking to Tressie McMillan Cottom was figuring out what to talk about because she has thought so deeply about so many things, which makes it all the more amazing and infuriating to consider our history. 200 years ago, as a black person in the South, she would have been a slave. Just over 100 years ago, as a woman in America, she would have been unable to vote. To this day, women and people of color in this country are treated unfairly in ways official and unofficial, big and small. Among the many, many reasons that's a tragedy is that it wastes the potential of so many of our citizens. There are legions of talented people we never hear from, never benefit from, because they never get a chance to make it to the stage. Think of all the intelligence we've missed out on, the insight, the humor, It's not diminishing Tressie McMillan-Cottom's achievements at all to say that there are many others like her we'll never know about because our system has knocked them down and ground them up. We are lucky to have her, and I mean lucky in a couple of different ways. Southbound is a production of WFAE in Charlotte. Our main theme music comes from Josh Turner. You can listen to this and other episodes of Southbound on the NPR One app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. You can subscribe for free to get each new episode sent to you when it's ready. You can also find Southbound on WFAE.org, where every episode has show notes with more information on that week's guest. See you all next time. Thanks for listening.